All right, good morning. That's more like it. Okay, now we've we got some, some uh, conversations going. That's great this morning. Glad you guys are meeting one another. My name is Dave, and uh, we're going to talk this morning about deception. Deception is this ugly encounter when someone is trying to intentionally mislead another person for their own personal gain. So basically, it's the unscrupulous trying to take advantage of the naive. Okay? I don't know if you get many emails like I do, but I, I get emails that come through promising me you know, all kinds of money. And I got one of these actually just yesterday. And you know, oftentimes, we get these emails, and there are some things that tip us off to the fact that this is really deceptive. This is not a real thing. So the first thing that tipped me off was that they're offering me five and a half million dollars, okay? So I, that makes me just a little bit suspicious. The second thing is that they're going to deliver it to me through this, this is what it's called, an ATM Master Express credit card. So I'm not sure if that's a MasterCard or an American Express or some kind of hybrid of those two. I've just never heard of this, so it makes me just a little bit suspicious. And then I get down to this little paragraph where it tells me that I'm going to need to pick the courier service to deliver the card to me and the different prices that I'm going to have to pay to, to get that card to me, right? Then I start getting really suspicious. So UPS is, will get it to me in 48 hours for 130 bucks. That's the most expensive one. FedEx, 72 hours for 100 bucks. DHL is the economy version for $95. And so I got to pick one of those to get it to me. So then my, you know, my antenna is starting to go up. And the other thing that I see in here is that uh, I can only withdraw a maximum of $10,000 a day, so I'm not really sure that I'm interested in this anyway. <laughs> the bottom line is it comes from, I don't know if you can see this name down there, it comes from Reverend Innocent Johnson, okay? So if it's from a pastor, it must be true. You know, I'm not sure where a pastor comes up with five hundred, five and a half million dollars to give away. And anyway, so sometimes we, we see things and it's really easy to see through the deception and, and walk away from it and say, you know, no thanks. Other times it's not quite so easy. So I had a situation like this uh, about 15 or so years ago. I bought a car. Okay. You ever been deceived when buying a car? Um, my wife and I were just out of grad school, out of seminary. And we had no money, so, but we had to buy a car. So I knew I wanted a Toyota Camry because Camrys are you know, bulletproof. They run forever. And so I'm like, I got to have a Camry. And so the problem is we had no money and Camrys really hold their value. And so finally, we found one in our price range. It was 11 years old, but I thought it's okay because Camrys run forever. So it'll be okay. So we lived in Lancaster at the time. And lo and behold, the car was in Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. And so we made our way out here to take a look at this car. It was in kind of a sketchy kind of part of town. I don't even remember the part of town, which is probably just as well. But we went in this part of town, and it's kind of like Sherry and Sherry's kind of going, I'm, I'm a little bit scared here. I'm like, it's okay. It's a Camry. It'll be okay. So we, we get in the car. We're driving with this guy. It's a stick shift. I should have known right away that there's something wrong because I start shifting from first to second and it grinds, right? So any sensible person, see, I just have to tell you that that was 15 years ago, okay? I've learned a lot <laughs> since then, but 
you know, I, I should have known, but it, it was grinding. And the guy goes, so the, the sales guy, uh, he says, yeah, my uncle is a mechanic. And yeah, he looked at that. And he said, it's this really simple little inexpensive plastic piece that you just need to replace. To which I should have said, right, what would you have said? Why didn't you replace it already then, right? But no, I did. it's a Camry. I mean, I, I got to have this thing. So, so we, we're driving on. He's telling me the story of his grandmother and how many years she had driven this car and, you know, how much she loved it and everything. And so finally we got to the end. I'm like, okay, it's not perfect. It's not great, but it's in our price range, so, so we'll take it. And so we're handing him the money. He gives me the title, and I look at the title, and the title says American Cancer Society. That's, that's who owned the car, right? And so I'm like, wait a minute, I thought you said it was your, your grandmother. And he's like, oh yeah, well my grandmother, she really supported the American Cancer Society and something, whatever. I mean, I just, I bought it. It was a Camry. So I'm like, okay, we gotta, gotta have it. So then I took that to the title place. And of course they told me what that meant. They're like, well, this was an auction car. I mean, somebody donated it to the American Cancer Society, right? And this guy bought it from them and he just looked for some suspecting little person to come along and and there I was. So we took the car. We had it. It was ours. We took it back to Lancaster, took it to the mechanic. He said, that grinding problem, you're, that you have to have your transmission rebuilt. It's going to be like four or 500 bucks. Well, I mean, we only paid 2,000 bucks for the car. So I'm like, man, I really don't want to put this money in the car. He said, there's another solution. You can just double clutch every time you change from first to second. And so for the next five years, I just double clutched the car. Many of those times, thinking of my friend sitting in the seat there, telling me about his grandmother. I mean, who lies about their grandmother? But anyway, so when, when, you, really, when you really want something to work out, you know, we're, we're really vulnerable at that point. When we really want something to work out, we're, we're easily taken in by the deception and so maybe you have experienced something like this in your own life, okay? Don't raise your hand, but there are investment scams out there. Maybe, maybe you saw an investment, and it sounded a little bit iffy, sounded a little bit off the beaten path, but you said, well, the payoff, man, if the payoff comes through like they're saying, then it's, it's worth it. And you invest and lose it. Or, or it happens in relationships, I mean, you, you meet someone and they look great on the outside. They look like they have their life together. And then as you get closer and closer to them, you realize that what's on the outside is not the same as what's on the inside, that there's a deception going on. Sometimes that's hard to see from the outset. can happen to us even with, with habits that are seemingly innocent, Maybe we, we start to just take a little drink before we go to bed, just to calm us down, just to help us sleep. And it seems really innocent, but it, over time it just becomes uh, an addiction. Uh, it, what started out as comfort and started out as simple just starts to enslave us. And so deception is, is insidious because... We, we don't see it happening. By definition, we don't know when we are being deceived. So that's a scary thought. Because, I mean, how can we warn against it? How can we walk away from it if we don't even know that it's happening? Wouldn't it be great if there was some kind of early warning system? What, what if there was some kind of alarm that went off for you where you you realize when you're in a situation and it seems too good to be true but you're wanting it to work out and you're 
you're being taken in by, wouldn't it be great if some kind of alarm went off? I mean, we put security systems on our homes, we put protection on our computers. Wouldn't it be great if we could somehow safeguard our lives from deception? Well, the good news is that we can. There is such a an early warning system, and we're going to look at it this morning as we look at the account of the very first deception recorded in history. And as we look at this and we see this person who is naive and taken in by someone who is wanting their own benefit instead of the benefit of the duped person, as we see this duped person, we're going to recognize, unfortunately, that you and I have a lot in common with this person who's taken in. But the good news is that we can learn from their mistakes and we can learn how to spot deception before it takes us over. So if you would take a Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 2, we are in a series where we're going back to the beginning. We're going back to creation and we're seeing how God intended things to be from the beginning. So we've seen creation, uh, God creating everything that exists. We've seen him giving us the good gift of work. We've seen him giving us this gift of freedom with boundaries. And last week we looked at his gift of sexuality. And so up until now, we've been talking about how God intended for things to be. Today, we're going to start to see why the world we live in does not look like the world that God intended it to be. We're going to start to see why the world is scarred, why it's messed up, why it's broken. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, and look at a couple of verses here that we saw several weeks ago because it gives us the backdrop for what we're going to talk about. So Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Okay, so we need that as a backdrop. That was God's encounter. That's God giving the first man freedom to eat from any tree in the garden. You have all this freedom of choice. There's one boundary. Leave this one tree of good and knowledge, knowledge of good and evil alone. Lots of freedom, one boundary. We need that as a backdrop as we move into Genesis chapter 3. Okay? Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent. Okay, whenever you see, stop for a moment. Whenever you see the word now introducing a new sentence or paragraph in the Bible, you should pay attention. Something's about to change. Something's about to be different, and probably most of the time it's not really good, okay? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Okay, pause there for a second. Okay, so we have a serpent talking to this woman. Now, that's different, right? So I I have to confess to you, I have never heard a snake talk. Part of that's because I don't hang around with snakes. So they could be talking all the time for all I know. I, I don't know. We don't have a lot of recorded instances of snakes talking, right? So some people see that here in Genesis 3 and say, well, there's no talking snakes. 
So we're going to dismiss Genesis 3, and while we're at it, let's just dismiss Genesis 1, 2. Let's just dismiss all of Genesis as being a myth or a fable, because there's no such thing as talking snakes. Before we jump to that conclusion, let me just suggest a couple of important things to you. Okay, first thing is, Jesus believed that, that Genesis 1 through 3 was true. Jesus believed that there was a man named Adam, and he said this in Mark chapter 10, when he was talking about marriage and divorce, in Mark 10 he said, from the beginning of creation, God made male and female, and then he quotes a verse that we read last week from Genesis 2, 24. Therefore a man will leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So Jesus believed that there really was a first man, first woman, and that what God established in marriage was true. And so not only Jesus, but Paul, who wrote most of the, the New Testament, Paul talked about Adam and, and Eve uh, a number of times, and one instance is, he said, as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. So Jesus and Paul believe that these events happened, and so uh, that lends credence to me to say, well, I, it must be true then, especially if Jesus says it, it must be true. So not only that, but we should consider the fact that as we talk about this serpent who's speaking to this woman, this is no ordinary serpent. Okay, the last book of the Bible, Revelation, calls him that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So this snake talking to this woman is not just your garden variety snake. There's something, there's, there's an energizing evil force that's behind this, uh, uh, it's possessed, if you will, by an, an evil enemy. And, and I recognize, again, some of you may be here this morning and you don't believe in all that stuff. You don't believe in a devil, you don't believe in Satan. You think that's just stuff that we talk about at Halloween, we joke about it, kids dress up as it, we put blow up things in our front yard and we just, we just joke about it. But you should know that scripture takes him very seriously. And you should know that one of his ploys is he loves for you not to believe that he exists. That's one of his deceptions. So just realize that as, as we're saying this. So now let's, let's read what he said again. And keep in mind as we read this, he's talking to this woman who, for all of her existence, which we don't know how long that is, this may have happened pretty quickly after she was created, but for all of her existence, she's, all she's known is she lives in paradise. She lives in this perfect place. So she really has no reason to be suspicious at this point. But here is what he says, again, in verse 1. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Okay, what is he doing here? He, he is twisting truth. He's using the same words that God used. He's talking about the same stuff. He's talking about a tree. He's talking about a garden. He's talking about eating. But he's rearranging the words and he's twisting the truth. This is what makes deception so difficult. I mean, if something's just an outright lie, I mean, if he just came in and started talking about banana pudding or something like that, I mean, we'd be like, I, you know, what, what are you talking about? I mean, we would recognize it right away, but the thing that's so insidious about deception is it's taking truth, and it's just twisting it just a little bit. 
makes it really hard to detect. So her best response, the woman's best response would have been, no, that's not what God said, and then walk away. Because God didn't say that. God didn't say, don't eat from any tree of the garden. He said the opposite of that. He said, you can eat from every tree of the garden. Only this one should you not eat from. He, she should have said, here's what God said. And she kind of did. Let's read on and see what she does. She says, the, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Okay, so she has the right idea here. She, she's quoting what God said. She's going back and saying, no, here's what God said. Here's the problem. She doesn't get it right. It, it's very subtle, but she, she doesn't say exactly what God said. She doesn't apparently know exactly what God said about what to do, what not to do. So maybe, maybe you, if you read the Sunday paper, if anybody even gets a paper anymore, maybe you've seen these little comics in there where it says, you know, find the differences. You've got these two pictures that look almost identical, but they're just a little bit different. Okay, we're going to do that with these verses, with these things that the woman said this morning here for just a few minutes. I want you to see the differences between what God said and what she thought God said. Okay, there are four differences between these two. The first one is in the first line. Okay, what is, what's the difference? It's very subtle. You may surely eat. God said you may surely eat, and she just said you may eat. We may eat. So here's, here's why that's significant. This is a little bit harder to see in English. It's so subtle. But in the Hebrew, what God said is eating you may eat. Okay, it's, a, it's a Hebrew idiom that is kind of underlining what God said. It's like putting a big underline mark. Eating, you may eat. Basically, God is saying, go for it. Eat. Enjoy your, yourself. Knock yourself out. You may surely eat. And she's just kind of minimizing that a little bit. We may eat. But she doesn't say, you know, this great generosity. Uh, what's another problem that you see there? She doesn't name the, the tree. She's not specific about what tree she's not supposed to be eating from. God said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does she say? The tree in the midst of the garden. If you're very familiar with the story, there were two trees in the midst of the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of what? Life. And she just says, we're not supposed to eat from that tree in the middle of the garden. She's not specific about God's boundary that he put on this. Uh, two more differences. Touch, yes. She adds to the prohibition. So God just said, don't eat it. And she says, we're not even supposed to touch it. Now, that's probably a good idea. Okay, I mean, why would you go touching it if you're not intending to eat it? But the Kind of subtly in there, what she's doing is she's minimizing how generous and good and free God is and giving them all of these things to enjoy. She's minimizing that part and she's starting to maximize the prohibitions that God has put on them. And the last one is in the last line. 
surely again. You, God said you will surely die. It's the same Hebrew construction. Dying, you will die. The day you eat of it, when you eat of it, dying, you will die. It is going to happen. If you break this command I'm giving you, it is inevitable this was going to happen. And she's minimizing that consequence. So, in the woman's defense, if you notice this in chapter 2, where we read there in chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, who did God give the command to? The man. God commanded the man these things. And so the man passed this along to her, apparently, and maybe he, he didn't get it right. Maybe he didn't have it down verbatim. And so, you know, maybe he didn't have it precisely to give to her. For whatever reason, she did not have it down verbatim. And so what we see is she's vulnerable. She is vulnerable to this twisted truth. See, trusted truth, here's what I want you to take away this morning. Trusted truth exposes twisted truth. If, if truth is twisted, but we know the truth, we know tr- and we trust what God has said, if we've got it down pat, then we are, we are shielded, we are in a much better position, we are much less vulnerable to being taken in by a twisted truth, because we'd recognize it, we'd say, this is just wrong. See, this is what secret servicemen do as they try to figure out counterfeit money, right? The, the $20 bill is the most counterfeited bill in the United States. And so what secret servicemen do as part of their training is they study the real thing to say, I, I, I want to understand and I want to close my eyes. I want to know what it feels like. I want to know what it looks like when I hold it up to the light. I want to study how it's been woven together. And, and so they're studying the real thing so that if they come across something that's been just twisted just a little bit, a counterfeit bill, they can say, wow, this, this doesn't feel right, it doesn't smell right, it doesn't look right. Because trusted truth exposes twisted truth. So let's read on. Uh, the woman is in a vulnerable spot because she doesn't know the truth real well. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Okay, here he's just bald-faced, contradicting what God said. In fact, he knows what God said better than she does. You will not surely die. Dying, you will not dying, you will die. That's what it says in the Hebrew. He's directly contradicting what God said. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil So what is he doing? He's making the forbidden look good and he's making God look bad. He's making what God forbade them to eat. He's saying, no, if you eat that, if you take that, you're going to be so much better off. And in fact, God, he's maligning God's character because he's saying God's holding out on you. I mean, God just doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to know the stuff that he knows. You'll be better off. And he knows it and he doesn't want you to enjoy that, that privilege. Right here, right at this point, this is the point, another point, for the woman to stop and say, no, I'm going to obey what God said and walk away. And say, I'm never going to talk to a snake again. They're going to listen to him, not just going to engage them in conversation. That, this is the time for her to stop, but she's on this slippery slope, 
and she's about to go off the edge. I find it significant also at this point that God is silent. Did you ever think about that? I mean, God could have stepped in at this point and said, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, be, be careful. Think about what you're about to do. Think about what this, where this conversation is going. Eve, let me remind you what I said. But God is silent. He's standing and he's allowing this to play out. And what that says to me is that, that we have a God who values very highly our free will that he has given us. I mean, that's something we value really highly, isn't it? That we can make our own choices. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. God says, well, there's a reason why you value that. I gave it to you. Because think about it this way. If God had not put that tree in the middle of the garden and said, don't eat from it, if he had just said, just do whatever you want all day long, then there's no opportunity to disobey him. There's also no opportunity to obey him. There's no opportunity. I mean, love that really doesn't have a choice to love really isn't love at all. And so God puts this tree in the middle of the garden saying, I'm putting this here to see what you will choose. Will you choose to obey me? Will you choose to love me by obeying me? Or will you choose otherwise? And so he stays silent and says, I'm just going to watch and see what you're going to do with this. And in verse 6, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Do do you notice, do you notice all the sensory words that are there? When she saw that the tree was good for food, That tastes good. I mean, I see something good. It's going to taste good. It was a delight to the eyes. The tree was desired to make one wise. She's she's taking in sensory input, which is not a bad thing. Okay, God created our senses. I mean, our senses are a beautiful gift. I mean, to, to to have the gift of being able to see beauty, to have the gift to be able to taste things. I mean, I love that gift. I mean, there there are just some wonderful things to be able to hear. Music, the sound of another person's voice. I mean, these are beautiful, beautiful gifts. But if we listen to the sensory input over and above the voice of God, then we have misused our senses. And so she's looking at the fruit. She's thinking, man, it looks really good. I mean, see, forbidden fruit rarely looks bad. I mean, she's looking at, if it had been kind of this rotten pear, stanky thing hanging in the tree, I mean, that's not really much of a temptation, really. She would have just walked away and said, man, I'm not not eating that. It looked good, and and again, God's giving the choice. He's giving a real choice here. Are you going to obey me or, or not? And so she sees that. She's taken in by her senses. Be careful. Be careful when your senses start telling you things that are contradicting what God has said. This is why it's so important for us to know what the trusted truth is because we may see something that looks really good. We may see a person that you work with and maybe you're in a committed relationship with a spouse or maybe you're planning to be committed someday. You, you see some person at work, they look good, 
They sound good. They're saying things that, man, my spouse hasn't said that to me in a long time. They smell good because you haven't been around them at some point when they don't smell because everybody doesn't smell good at some point, but you haven't been around them at that point. I mean, all these senses are telling you this, oh, this is a great, this person is so much better. Be careful because God's already drawn the boundary. His boundaries, we said this last week, his boundaries protect beauty in every area of our life. If God has forbidden us from something, it is for our good. And we dare not listen to our senses over what God is telling us. Proverbs, actually in two places, Proverbs 14.12 and 16.25 says, there's a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. That's deception, when something looks good, but isn't good. Twisted truth exposes, I'm sorry, trusted truth exposes twisted truth. Truth. So she, she saw it looked good. She took the fruit and ate in verse 6. And she, gave, she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. This is a whole other message, okay? A whole other message on the passivity of, of the husband here. Because she didn't have to go running and look for him. He was standing there apparently watching this whole scene unfold. And he could have stepped in and said, wait a minute, that's not what God said. Wait a minute, don't do this. We, we don't want to walk away and disobey what God has said. And so this, But instead he stands silent and lets this all play out. And, and that may be a propensity that, that men have even to this day of passively letting things happen instead of stepping in and protecting those we love with the truth. So they ate, they disobeyed, and verse 7, we see things begin to unravel. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What was it that the serpent said was going to happen when they ate? They would be like God, and they would... No, good and evil. Here's what they knew. Here's what actually happened. They knew that they were naked. They knew that they were exposed, and for the first time they were ashamed. They were guilty. They knew good and evil now. They knew, wait a minute, I'm evil because I've disobeyed what God asked me to do. This same scene plays out over and over and over again. There's really nothing new. The, the enemy of our souls has no new tricks up his sleeve. He deceives us the same way by coming to us and offering us a twisted truth. He takes something that God may have really said or done or something that's really good and he twists it just a little bit to make it look good. And a question for you and you and me, is do I know and trust God's truth well enough so that when he comes with the deception, I'm able to recognize it for what it is and walk away from it? Trusted truth exposes twisted truth. So here's the, here's the practical application for us this morning. There's a, an index card there. should have been one on your seat when you came in. Here's what I do with index cards. I, I work to memorize scripture. 
I work to, to get, Psalm 119 says, Your word, God, have I hidden in my heart so that I will not sin against you. We're hiding what God says. We're putting what God said into our heart so that we have that at the ready anytime some deceptive situation comes along. So here's a verse that I have been meditating on, working to memorize lately. This is Romans 6.11. It says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's a truth that I need to hold on to right now because I need to remember when temptation comes my way. I'm dead to sin. I mean, what did, how do dead people respond to things that come their way? They don't. They're dead. Right? So I'm dead to sin, but I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's a truth that I need to have in my mind so that when situations come, temptations come, deceptions come, I have that there. So that card is there for you to write down a memory verse. And maybe you're more high-tech than that. Maybe you want to put that in your smartphone. But my, my assignment for you, if you choose to accept it, this week, is to, to find a verse and memorize it. Maybe it's been a long time. Maybe you've never memorized a verse. Okay? But to, to put something in your mind that becomes that security system, that protection from deception that you and I can't even see coming. See, Jesus, Jesus got this right. Because Jesus, God in flesh, who came to earth to walk this earth, he was tempted just like you and I are. In fact, there's a scene in Matthew uh, chapter 4, in Luke chapter 4, where Satan comes to him and attempts to deceive him in much the same way that he did with the woman here. But Jesus passes. It's crucial for Jesus to pass this temptation because Jesus has come. His mission is to be the perfect, holy, sinless sacrifice so that for all of us who will not be perfect and holy and sinless, he needs to die in our place so that his perfect blood can wash away our sins. That's, his mission is crucial. And if he sins at any one point, then Satan has won and he's no longer a perfect sacrifice and all of us are doomed. But he gets it right. And how does he get it right? Every time the enemy comes to him, he comes back with Scripture. He comes back with God's truth. He says, no, you're twisting the truth right now. Satan even quotes Scripture. He says, you're twisting the truth. Here is the trusted truth. He says, it is written, it is written, it is written. And that's what you and I need to do as we're walking through life and temptations come our way. No, I know this looks good. I know my senses right now are telling me that this would be good. I know that the enemy is saying, I would be better off if I just indulged in this. No, it is written. This is what God said. Trusted truth exposes twisted truth. So, so many of us need to spend more time with the truth. We need to be spending more time in, in these scriptures, understanding what God said, committing it into our memory. We also need to spend more time, many of us, with the truth giver. Because it's not just truth that delivers us, it's trusted truth that delivers us. And the only way we trust in that truth is if we trust the one who gave it to us and trust that his, he really is for our best interests. 
that he's giving us these commands either to do or not do for our good. If we don't trust the truth giver, then we're going to say, I don't really care what he has to say. But if we trust him and believe that he says, I want you to be my child, I want you to be with me forever, I want good things for your life, then we trust him and then we say, okay, God, I'll take your truth over this thing that looks good but I really know to be a lie because it's different from what you have said. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is inspired by God or breathed out by God and is useful to teach us what's true to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. Scripture tells us what is right and wrong, and as we internalize that and cling to it, it becomes a protection system for us from the enemy who wants to take us out. One of the reasons why so many of us get our legs cut out from under us is we don't, we don't know what God said well enough, and we don't trust what God, who God is well enough. To, to hold on to him. May he make us strong in his truth and convinced that he is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for the truth that you have spoken and that your intention is to deliver us from evil, to deliver us from destruction, that you don't want us to buy into what appears to be right but only leads to death in the end. You want us to buy into your truth and stay close to you and trust your heart. So Lord, I pray for that person here this morning who may be on the fence, who may be struggling, who may be on the edge of being taken in by something that looks good and maybe they don't even recognize that it's, it's deceiving. Lord, I pray that you would speak to their hearts because I can't. I can't convince anybody of anything, but Lord, your truth can and your spirit can. So I pray you'd rescue them and bring them back from that brink. Help them to make the choice that Eve did not make at that point and that all of us have made at so many points where we've chosen to disobey you. Help us to instead choose going forward to obey you, stay close to you, and walk in life instead of death. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.